Peace be upon you. For over 1,000 years, the Roman Catholic Church was the only major form of Christianity practiced throughout the entire world. It was founded by the beliefs that were established during the First Council of Nicaea convened by the Roman Emperor Constantine I in the year 325. This council was orchestrated for the church to establish the divinity of Jesus under what is known as the Nicene Creed. And it's from this creed that we have this idea of a trinity where it becomes the backbone of the ideology of the Roman Catholic Church. Not only did they corrupt the religion that Jesus preached, but more so they also destroyed the very foundation of the worship of God alone that has been the, the hallmark of Abrahamic faith, and instead they replaced it with paganism. And in the Quran in Surah 5 verse 72 through 76, God warns us about the people who did this. It reads, Pagans indeed are those who say that God is the Messiah, son of Mary. The Messiah himself said, O children of Israel, you shall worship God, my Lord and your Lord. Anyone who sets up any idol beside God, God has forbidden paradise for him, and his destiny is hell. The wicked have no helpers. Pagans indeed are those who say that God is a third of a trinity. There is no God except the one God. Unless they refrain from saying this, those who disbelieve among them will incur a painful retribution. Would they not repent to God and ask His forgiveness? God is forgiver most merciful. The Messiah, son of Mary, is no more than a messenger like the messengers before him, and his mother was a saint. Both of them used to eat the food. Note how we explain the revelations for them and note how they still deviate. Say, would you worship beside God powerless idols who can neither harm you nor benefit you? God is here omniscient. And for the next thousand plus years, this was just about the sole branch of Christianity throughout the world. Part of the way that they were able to keep their monopoly on the religion was by maintaining a rigid hierarchy. Then they would keep their followers ignorant. And finally, they would create endless amounts of church doctrine that they required their clergy to study and learn rather than the pure word of the scripture alone. Additionally, the Roman Catholic Church prohibited anyone outside of the clergy to attempt to interpret the Bible. Even then, when the clergy would recite the Bible, they would only do so in Latin, a language that few people outside of the clergy even understood. Around the turn of the millennium, the Catholic Church adopted another particularly blasphemous concept known as indulgences. These were church-certified documentation that individuals could obtain or purchase to have their sins forgiven, and even purchase them on behalf of dead relatives to have their sins forgiven. This concept was so egregious to certain members of the Roman Catholic Church that it caused a major rift in the faith that eventually caused the Church's monopoly on Christianity to come to an end. The particular event that triggered this occurred on October 31, 1517, when a priest named Martin Luther published a document entitled Disputations on the Power of Indulgences, or 95 Theses. This document consisted of 95 points against the Catholic Church's sale of indulgences, which Martin Luther was deeply against and viewed as a blasphemy against the direct teachings of the Bible. 
The ideas that Martin Luther proposed were particularly controversial because they directly contradicted the Catholic Church's teachings and challenged the Church's authority in these kinds of matters. This event spawned what is known as the Protestant Reformation. To further help strengthen his case to his reasonings, Martin Luther also did something else that appeared sacrilegious to the Roman Catholic Church. He translated the Bible from Latin to the German vernacular people spoke at that time. Now, the common person was not dependent on the interpretations of the Roman Catholic Church to understand the Bible, but could read and understand the matters for themselves. Martin Luther assumed that if everyone can access the scripture in their own language and come to hear the truth for themselves, then they will all come to the same conclusion he made. What happened was ironically quite different. As opposed to everyone coming to one solid understanding, what this caused was a spawn of hundreds of sects of individuals who all came to their own interpretations of what the Bible was saying and what the true form of Christianity was. So from this event, a schism formed where you had Protestants, Calvinism, you have Anabaptists, you have Puritans, you have Quakers, you have Baptists, and the list goes on and on of all these sects and divisions of Christianity that went before there was one solid monolith. Now you have this deviation of all these different sects, each with their own interpretations and understandings and doctrine. For years, one of the fastest growing faiths in the world was that of Islam. And for over the last thousand years, it was predominantly monopolized by two sects, Sunnis and Shias. The mechanism that these two sects utilized to maintain a grip on the masses for so many years was not much different than the tactics used by the Roman Catholics. Firstly, they establish a very rigid hierarchy with the ideology that the average Muslim must rely on the interpretation of the scholars known as the ulama for the proper interpretation of the religion for the masses. Secondly, they frowned upon the study and translation of the Quran from classical Arabic to people's modern tongue by convincing individuals that God's words cannot be translated and it was better for them to memorize the Quran in a language they did not understand rather than trying to understand what the message of the Quran actually was. Thirdly, they introduced an endless amount of supplementary religious material in addition to the Quran by means of Hadith and Sunnah that they required their followers to abide by and study. And ironically, when it came to the Hadith, they had no problems in individuals translating and understanding and making sense of it. Additionally, just like the Nicene Creed contradicted the teachings of Jesus and the Bible, these practices that the Sunnis and the Shias enforce are completely contradicting the Quran. In Surah 9 verse 31 it reads, They have set up their religious leaders and scholars as lords instead of God. Others defied the Messiah, Son of Mary. They were all commanded to worship only one God. There is no God except He, be He glorified, high above any partners. This verse is warning us about this concept of holding our religious scholars as gods beside God. The second we accept information from any other source, no matter how prestigious they may appear, that contradicts the direct verses of God in the Quran, then we are setting up this scholar as a Lord beside God.
In Surah 6 verse 114, it reads, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hear, the omniscient. So in these verses, God is very clearly articulating to us that the only source of religious law we should be following are the verses of God in the Quran. And what's fascinating is the following verse in Surah 6 verse 116, it warns us and say, if you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. Additionally, God tells us in the Quran that the only book we are meant to study for religious salvation is the Quran itself. In Surah 34 verse 44, it says, we did not give them any other books to study, nor did we send to them before you another warner. The only book we need for our religious salvation is in this Quran. But in addition to these innovations, the Sunnis and the Shias added another major blasphemy to the religion by setting up the Prophet Muhammad as an entity next to God. And they did this by including his name in the Shahada, the Declaration of Faith. They include his name in the Salat, the Contact Prayer, and their perpetual praising of him via Salawat. In Surah 39, verse 3, it reads, Absolutely, the religion shall be devoted to God alone. Those who set up idols beside him say, We idolize them only to bring us closer to God, for they are in a better position. God will judge them regarding their disputes. God does not guide such liars, disbelievers. The typical justification that Christians make in their idolization of Jesus is not far off from what Today's Muslims say regarding the Prophet that they idolize him because he was the closest to God and therefore they're constantly praising his name. But the second they do that, they're showing that they don't worship God alone. Because even if we acknowledge the servant of God perpetually next to God's name, then we're not calling on God alone. In Surah 39 verse 45, it says, When God alone is mentioned, the hearts of those who do not believe in the hereafter shrink with aversion. But when others are mentioned beside him, they become satisfied. If we are not satisfied with the mention and glorification of God alone, then it shows that we have tendencies towards idol worship. God additionally tells us in Surah 72 verse 18, it says, The places of worship belong to God. Do not call on anyone else beside God. This grip that the Sunnis and the Shias had on the Islamic faith for the masses has resided for roughly just over a thousand years, very similar to the Roman Catholic Church. But something interesting happened, particularly in 1974, where the Egyptian biochemist living in Tucson, Arizona, by the name of Dr. Rashad Khalifa, published his findings regarding the mathematical structure of the Quran based on the number 19. In a nutshell, Dr. Khalifa showed that one of the mechanisms that God utilized in preserving the Quranic text from distortion for the last 1400 years was by means of a form of encryption based on the number 19. This revelation was based on the findings of the Quran, predominantly Surah 74 of the Quran, entitled Al-Mudathir or translated into English, The Hidden Secret. Al-Mudathir means something hidden in plain sight. Or as we read in the surah, we see that this is a form of encryption that proves that this Quran is from God and it is not man-made. In Surah 74, we read about the individual that God created that made the claim that this Quran 
is man-made. It reads, starting from verse 11, let me deal with the one I created as an individual. I provided him with lots of money and children to behold. I made everything easy for him, yet he is greedy for more. He stubbornly refused to accept these proofs. I will increasingly punish him. For he reflected, then decided. Miserable is what he decided. Miserable indeed is what he decided. He looked, he frowned, he whined. Then he turned away arrogantly. He said, this is but clever magic. This is human made. Then in verse 30, God says, over it is 19. And in the following verse, he gives five reasons for this number 19. It reads, we appointed angels to be guardians of hell and we assigned their number. One, to disturb the disbelievers. Two, to convince the Christians and Jews that this is the divine scripture. Three, to strengthen the faith of the faithful. Four, to remove all traces of doubt from the hearts of Christians, Jews, as well as the believers. And five, to expose those who harbor doubts in their hearts. And the disbelievers, they will say, what did God mean by this allegory? God thus sends astray whoever wills and guides whoever wills. None knows the soldiers of your Lord except he... This is a reminder for the people. Absolutely, I swear by the moon and the night as it passes and the morning as it shines, this is one of the great miracles, a warning to the human race. At the time of this finding, the Muslim world heavily adored Dr. Khalifa's work. But then things started going south between the Muslim ulama and Dr. Khalifa, particularly after he published a book in 1981 entitled Quran, Hadith, and Islam, where he dismantled the foundations of Hadith and Sunnah as a source of religious law and instead showed how as a follower of the Quran, we are to follow the Quran alone. This infuriated the Muslim ulama to the extent that when the famous Lebanese publisher, Knowledge for the Millions, published the Arabic version of the miracle of the Quran in March 1983, the government of Saudi Arabia bought all the copies and destroyed them. In Surah 8 verse 36, it reads, those who disbelieve spend their money to repel others from the way of God. They will spend it, then it will turn into sorrow and remorse for them. Ultimately, they will be defeated and all disbelievers will be summoned to hell. Additionally, in 1981, Dr. Khalifa published his first fully compiled translation of the Quran in modern English. This translation was the 19th English translation to be published in the world and the first English translation to be done by a native Arab speaker. And unlike previous English translations that were written in some strange form of Old English, Dr. Khalifa's translation was written in modern, easy-to-understand English. The intention of Dr. Khalifa was to make the Quran accessible to all people in a language they could easily understand. This included not only translating the Quran into modern English, but even many terms that are commonplace in English to go back to their original meanings. Most notably, translating Islam as submission, Muslim as submitter, Salat as contact prayer, Zakat as obligatory charity. He constantly hammered home the point that a person's salvation should be strictly between the individual and their creator without the need of an intermediary like that of the misguided scholars who offer a surefire way for an individual to be led astray. Backed with the message of God alone, Quran alone, and the mathematical proof that the Quran we are reading today is the same Quran that was originally revealed to the Prophet Muhammad 1400 years ago, 
Dr. Khalifa announced to the world in 1988 that he was God's messenger of the covenant as prophesied in Surah 3 verse 81 of the Quran, where it reads, God took a covenant from the prophets, saying, I will give you the scripture and wisdom. Afterwards, a messenger will come to confirm all existing scriptures. You shall believe in him and support him. He said, do you agree with this and pledge to fulfill this covenant? They said, we agree. He said, you have thus borne witness and I bear witness along with you. Needless to say, this infuriated the Muslim ulama even more, such that on January 31st, 1990, Rashad Khalifa was assassinated in his masjid in Tucson, Arizona by Muslim fundamentalists. From then on, the Muslim ulama desperately tried to bury the work of Dr. Khalifa, but his arguments, translations, and findings spawned an entire movement. For years, Islam has been the fastest growing religion in the world. But within Islam, the ideology of Quranism, the understanding that the Quran alone should be the only source of religious law, is by far the most popular ideology for new converts to Islam. While the original modern-day Quran alone movement started with Dr. Khalifa, this newer rendition began when individuals co-opted and repackaged Dr. Khalifa's original work and claimed it as their own. But each individual who did this always did it with their own spin on the religion. These spin-offs are most notably seen in the reformist translation and the monotheist translations of the Quran and their supplementary work. And just like the hundreds of sects that appeared after the Protestant Reformation, we are now seeing hundreds if not thousands of different sects of Quranist Muslims. As more and more people came to study the Quran for themselves, they created more and more varied understanding of the Quranic verses, and these variations severely impact the foundations of the religion, including the Salat, the Zakat, fasting during Ramadan and Hajj. So today, among the Quranists, there are those who uphold five daily contact per Salat, while others uphold three, and others who mock the idea that Salat is a ritualistic prayer even amongst the Quranists who uphold the Salat. How any one of them performs their Salat is widely varying with different forms, times, and words to be recited. And the further down this rabbit hole one gets in Quranism, the more outlandish the various claims of Quranists become. There are those who claim that homosexuality, consuming intoxicants, or eating pork is not a sin. There are those who claim that zakat is just a matter of maintaining purity, and salat is just following closely, that siam fasting is just abstaining oneself, or that even the month of Ramadan should be based on a loony solar calendar. I have even met someone who is arguing we should not use the term Allah because it is too similar to the name of the pagan god Allah. The predominant mistake that I see Quranists making in their understanding of the Quran is that they try to understand the Quran as if it was revealed in a vacuum, almost as if the Quran had fallen from the sky and has no context, history, or functions beyond what is explicitly described and stated in the text. Then based on this underlying premise, they attempt to utilize classical Arabic dictionaries like Lane's lexicon and arbitrarily select interpretations from any of the list of derivative meanings that can be found from the triliteral root of the word. The end result of such an approach is obviously chaos, as any root can have a multitude of derivative meanings. But the bigger question is how is the word used in the Quran itself? 
Some even go so far as to say that any of the Arabic letters that contain dots or vowels can be substituted for equivalent other letters if this will help them extricate a certain meaning they were hoping to obtain since the oldest manuscripts of the Quran don't possess dots or vowels. This flawed approach causes Quranists to differ widely on every topic. What I find particularly interesting about practitioners of this ideology is to date I have yet to find a genuine congregation of Quranists. This is because in order to form a congregation, the members need to agree on common religious practices. But since no two Quranists seem to ever agree, then this poses a major problem. And this is different having a community versus a congregation. Of course, you can form communities with all kinds of people, but what sets apart a congregation are these religious rites that the members of the congregation abide by. And this causes self-identified Quranists to be consistently inconsistent, as well as some of the most contentious individuals I've ever come across, since many of them consider they are the only ones with the absolute truth and anyone who doesn't believe the exact same as they do must be upholding some other source other than the Quran and therefore a hypocrite. So since none of them believe the same, practice the religion the same, and think anyone who has a different understanding than them is a heretic, it makes it very difficult to form a sustainable congregation. As a submitter, which is the literal meaning of the word Muslim, we understand that the religious rites the Salat, the contact prayer, the Zakat, the obligatory charity, Siam, fasting, Hajj, pilgrimage, were all practices established and passed down by Abraham, such that God in the Quran repeatedly commands the Prophet Muhammad to follow the religion of Abraham, Milat Ibrahim. In Surah 16, verse 123, it reads, Then we inspired you, Muhammad, to follow the religion of Abraham, Milat Ibrahim, the monotheist, he never was an idol worshiper. So this is informing us that the religious rites we uphold today all stem down from Abraham. So when opening the Quran, we immediately read in the third verse of the second surah of the Quran that the believers are those who observe the contact prayer salat. And we must acknowledge that this must be a practice that God expects us to already know or easily be able to find out how to observe Otherwise, the details would have been specified in the Quran. This methodology is at odds with the way that a Quranist typically identifies and understands this book. And typically, the Quranists fall into one of two camps. The first camp is those who are trying to somehow extract all the steps to perform the Salat from the verses of the Quran. In the most extreme cases, this ends with some individuals producing nine-hour videos and complicated theories to how the Salat must be performed. While the other camp of individuals say that the Salat just means to think about God or to recite the Quran with no particular form or design. Both these interpretations are wrong because trying to understand how to perform the Salat from the Quran alone is impossible. Yet this does not mean that the Quran is incomplete or missing any details we need for our salvation. In the following verse, God tells us that he is not short on words and could have created a Quran that is volumes and volumes long with endless details, yet God limited this Quran to a simple 6,346 verses. In Surah 18 verse 109 it reads, Say, if the ocean were ink for the words of my Lord, the ocean would run out, 
before the words of my Lord run out, even if we double the ink supply. If you talk to a traditionalist, Sunni or Shia, they typically try to make this an argument for the justification of inserting Hadith and Sunnah in order to complete our religion. Yet there is no single Hadith that details how to perform the Salat from start to finish. Even the Hadith that supposedly describes the Salat frequently contradicts one another. So how do we reconcile this? We see from the Qur'an that the purpose of the Qur'an is to clarify matters that have been previously disputed. In Surah 16 verse 64 it reads, We have revealed this scripture to you to point out for them what they dispute and to provide guidance and mercy for people who believe. Based on this verse, the mechanism we use to understand what the Salat is, is that when God tells us to perform a, a function or a practice, we simply go and look at how do we perform this. And what you come across is the form of Salat that again is indisputable. Then you take that form as it is today and you filter it through the Quran to pull out the impurities. So for instance, we start with the modern practice of how to do Salat. And when we filter it through the Quran, we come to realize that all our worship practices must be devoted to God alone, that we are not to call on anyone else in our Salat other than God alone. So we remove the mention of any other deity, any other names in our Salat. When it comes to the Zakat, we see that Zakat must be paid on the day we earn income and not only once a year. When it comes to Ramadan, we see that Ramadan starts on the new moon, irrespective if someone saw the moon with their eyes or not. And in regards to Hajj, we determine that the sacred months are consecutive and that it would be blasphemous to visit the Prophet's tomb during such a sacred rite for God. So we see that the function of the Quran is to purify our religion. That when God tells us about these practices, it means that they're already in existence, they're already readily available, and they have been readily available since the time of Abraham. That's why God told Muhammad to follow the religion of Abraham. God didn't need to specify to Muhammad how to perform the Salat, how to give the Zakat, because all these practices were already in existence. All the Prophet needed to do was use the Quran to filter these practices, to remove the idol worship from them, and to get them back to its pristine shape. Now all that being stated, if I had to make a prediction, my guess is that the Quranist movement and the general idea that people are going to continue to attempt to understand the Quran for themselves will continue gaining traction in fracturing the stronghold that the Sunnis and Shias have historically had on the religion. Also, I want to clarify that despite my disagreements with many Quranists, or even more generally with people of difference of understandings, I'm not dismissing them. As long as their worship and devotion is dedicated to God alone, that I still consider them believers. The Quran warns us that if we do this, if we dismiss individuals who devote their religion to God alone, then we, by no uncertain terms, would be deemed transgressors. In Surah 6 verse 52 it reads, And do not dismiss those who implored their Lord day and night devoting themselves to Him alone. You are not responsible for their reckoning, nor are they responsible for your reckoning. If you dismiss them, you will be a transgressor. I think it's fine to have difference of understandings and difference of opinions and debate these points. Uh, there's a quote that it says, argue like you're right, but listen like you're wrong. And 
We see in the introduction from Dr. Rashad Khalifa in his translation of the Quran, he makes the following statement. As expected from the Creator's final message, one of the prominent themes in the Quran is the call for unity among all believers and the repeated prohibition of making any distinction among God's messengers. If the object of worship is one and the same, there will be absolute unity among all believers. It is the human factor, for example, devotion and prejudice to such powerless humans as Jesus, Muhammad, and the saints that causes division, hatred, and bitter wars among the misguided believers. A guided believer is devoted to God alone and rejoices in seeing any other believer who is devoted to God alone, regardless of the name such a believer calls his or her religion. And then it quotes the following verse from the Quran, in chapter 2, verse 62 and 569, it reads, Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who, one, believes in God, two, believes in the last day, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions or want to get in contact, we've been very active on Discord and you can find the Discord link below. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to the QuranStudyApp.com website. And until next time, peace and God bless.